There are many pressing issues of concern today, but our ability to feed a global population now very close to 8 billion people is top of mind. That's because nothing is more destructive to an individual's life than a lack of access to food. And nothing is more destabilizing to communities, societies and countries than widespread food shortages. Yet that challenge can't be viewed in isolation. For the ability to feed a global population turns on how effectively we nurture the planet that makes it possible. And as we all know, the current relationship between humanity and the planet is perilous. And there's a critical need to accelerate and scale regenerative mindsets and practices to restore and fortify the planet's ability to provide for our future. It's not surprising then that much attention falls on the food sector, both in terms of its capacity to provide for the food we need and care for our planet in the process. So how does business resolve such a massive, complex and real-time issue? How do we at once restore the planet while also providing for humanity's enormous needs? And how do we do it in a way that meets this challenge with an effective and sustainable solution? This issue is not only critical today, but will become even more so in the near, mid and long terms. The impact of the climate emergency will put even greater strain on our ability to grow the food we need, the global supply chains that distribute it, and the cost of that food in different markets around the world. So where do you begin? Do you start with small holding farmers working the land around the globe? Do you start with a macro perspective of global food systems? Do you begin with consumer education? Nothing could be more important to our future. And while this may sound like a daunting challenge, it's also an incredible opportunity to reimagine and re-engineer business to better serve humanity and the planet. So let's dig into these questions that are so important to our future. From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I talk with business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. Today, I'm joined by Rob Cameron. Now, Rob is Nestle's Global Head of Public Affairs and ESG Engagement. Established over 150 years ago, Nestle is the world's largest, most diversified food and beverages company. It has a unique global footprint and sells products in over 180 countries, working to enhance the quality of life and build a healthier future for people across the globe. And we'll discuss how a company with such a complex and consequential footprint leads with respect to ensure what it makes and how it makes it serves as many people as possible and the precious planet we share. So Rob, welcome to Lead With We. Yeah, thanks, I'm glad to be here. Now, Rob, I wanna start by asking what might seem like a counterintuitive question, which is why are you positive about the future? Why are you optimistic about our ability to provide the food and food system needs for a planet of a, a ballooning population and all these multiple crises? Why are you positive? Well, I think that if you think about it in terms of history, present, future, when I think back to how things used to be in terms of climate change and, and the lack of attention that climate change and uh, sustainability was receiving in the press, you know, it was always such a struggle to get people to pay attention. And now, you know, I think there's been such an upsurge in interest. I think it's fair to say that the upsurge in interest from all quarters is at least in part driven by some of the physical things that we see around us. It's been one of the hottest years on record, we know that. Uh, and some of the things also that we see around us, you know, would give us cause for, cause for thought. And there's no question, there, there, there are concerns, right? There's concerns. 
But the thing about concern, about any concern, and it's always been the case in business, if you understand that there's a problem, you've got a chance to do something about it. And I think there are more people mobilizing to do more about the sustainability agenda, particularly climate change, than ever I've known in 25 more years working in this space. So I think there's an optimism in the sense that we're, we're mobilizing, challenge in the sense that the scale of the issues, you know, it's, it's big, but hope that human ingenuity can actually drive some progress here. We need it. And I think that the mobilizing forces are there now. There's a, we just need the will. We know how to do it. We need just keep building the will. I, I really like what you're saying there because this is not a linear game. You know, these issues that we're solving for aren't increasing in a linear way. They're exponential because the crises are compounding and they're connected. But as you're saying, our response is exponential as well. As more people join, an ever greater number of people are mobilized and, and we've got greater cause for hope. So, you know, just for those who don't fully appreciate the scope and size of Nestle, because there are those around the world who might go, you know, oh, we know them and they make, you know, the, the products that add sweetness to our life and joy and, and the things that we grab or those who realize the, just the scope and scale of what you make. Give us a sense of how big Nestle is, the number of brands you have out there, the global footprint, you know? Yeah. Okay. So in terms of the company size, you know, present in 180 plus countries, revenues in the in close to 100 billion Swiss francs. So revenue-wise, country-wise, absolutely huge. Having said that, a lot of people use the line, Nestle is the world's biggest food and beverage company. We are. But it's also fair to say that if you looked at the, all of the food systems overall, for whatever rather crude way of putting it, the stomach share that we have, is it actually really small? So I think it's important not to get ahead of ourselves. We may be the biggest company but we still are relatively small against the size of the system as a whole. That said, the other thing that people often overlook about, now a couple of things people often overlook about Nestle that I think are worth sharing. Firstly, we are the global local food company. We have about 2,000 brands around the world, and many of those brands in the countries that they're they're marketed uh, have subtle differences. So you know, it's, just, it's not just that there's 2,000 brands. There are subtle differences in some of the flavors and the makeup of the recipes to suit local context. So you know, there's that localization piece around the company that I think is super important as a, a facet of what we do. The other thing to say is that we've got something in the region of 280, 290,000 people around the world. Over the course of my career, you know, many, many, many years ago, I used to work in employee communications. I always felt like one of the ways in which companies can change the world is what, how they deal with their own employees, how the relationship that we have. And I think that's another facet of where we have influence. So it's a big company with a lot of influence, but we're also very humble when it comes to looking at the system as a whole and understanding that we can change things, we can influence things, but we don't have the power to change the way that the world does everything, you know? No, there's so the thing- humility, strong theme of humility that comes through the business. No, I've always had a sense of the brand that it's always sort of led from that sort of humble place. And I think your point is well taken in as much as you're the global local company. And that gives you great power because all of these things on the ground need to be executed at a local level. So if you were sort of this overarching brand, you'd struggle to do that. So I think that's really helpful in that sense. I want to ask another contextual question because I think of all the issues out there, you know, you've got the climate emergency, extreme weather, you've got probably food is probably in the top two or three in terms of people's minds. Everyone's aware of the rising population and so on. But just to step back a little bit, I mean, 
you with your experience as being you know the chief executive at fair trade and then the, the think tank sustainability probably have one of the best lines of sight as to the arc of this conversation over the last several decades that now manifests in, in all this dialogue around regeneration and so on but really you know there was csr and to some degree philanthropy then there was sustainability which was risk mitigation through supply chain and then there was sustainability in a broader sense and then now there's purpose and ESG and regeneration. You know, for those who sometimes get lost in all of this, give us a sense of how you see the shape of that dialogue and what's going on. Well, I think you've crystallized that there's been a lot of evolution. I mean, I remember in the late 90s and some of the people that I was working with were debating about, are we going to call this corporate responsibility or are we going to call it corporate social responsibility or corporate social environmental responsibility. You know, all these terminologies and eventually ended up with CSR and then it evolved, as you said. I think regeneration is a theme whose time has come. It's a theme whose time has come because we have to do this now. We have to do this. No, there's no other way forward to my mind. The idea of um, a regenerative economy is one that puts life at the center of its decision-making. That's how we talk about it here. And I think it's absolutely essential to do think like that because you know, sustainability is, a, is a, a way of thinking that's been a very strong and powerful driver for companies, no question. But we need to go beyond sustainability. The idea that there's so much remediation that has to be done. And if you put life at the center of everything, life begets life. The idea that in our agricultural operations, you know, the idea that we're enhancing biodiversity, creating the conditions uh, in which the natural world can continue to restore itself. We see this over and over again, that where you allow nature to, to flourish, flourish it does. So that expression of regeneration, best done through regenerative agriculture, that's something very tangible we can get hold of. But it's more than that. There's a right. the whole kind of philosophy around regeneration. One other thing which I think is really important to say, we talk about regeneration, as you know, a lot. I think it's really important that we honor, cherish, and nurture the concept. It's a risk of being overused and diluted. Mm. And I think it's too important. This transition, I'm not going to say pivot because it's not a pivot. This transition through the kind of concepts into ESG and sustainability and now into regeneration, this transition is really super important. And we have to grow into it rather than just say, oh, well, we can just flip and do it. You don't just do regeneration. It doesn't work like that. You grow into it. It's a way of thinking. So it's something we have to evolve into fast. But I think it's important that we honor it uh, and think very deeply about what we mean by it, what we mean by a regenerative economy. Ultimately, in my eyes, a regenerative economy would be one in which the more you buy something or the more you use something, the better the world becomes. That's the kind of spirit of the thing. And my word, we've got a long way to go before we get shot. That's the direction of travel that I definitely want to go in. And I think that distinction is so important because, you know, the timelines we're working against are contracting. And so we need to be very, the integrity of what we're doing is critical so that we're doing it for real. And I do think, as you pointed to, this is about us reframing our role, our species, in the context of being part of the system rather than in control of the system. And that's a huge shift. But let me ask you this, the cynic amongst us, those who question motives in business, we've seen with the flight of capital to ESG funds, we've seen the shakeout between disingenuous and genuine behavior. And it seems like whether it's through the lens of 
purpose or sustainability or ESG, you know, there's always those actors that will sort of play at it and manage the optics rather than doing it for real. And to some degree, we've had a, enough time to indulge that frailty in human nature, but we're out of time now. So how do we make sure that we almost course correct around this disposition in human nature to not do it for real, to play at it, to monetize it, to, to, to work the optics of it? You know, how are we going to make sure that this time we're doing it for real? Because if not, if you look at the you know, IPCC report and so on, there's going to be huge cascading consequences. That's absolutely right. We can't afford to backslide on this. I think one of the areas that I feel very strongly about is that there's been an awful lot of target setting and then failure to deliver. And, and I think that all too often, some businesses have been very focused on the headline you get or announcing your intent or the goal or the commitment and not enough follow through on the actuality. So to give you an example of that, when it comes to deforestation, there was a report just put out by Global Canopy that out of 160 global food and beverage companies, strongly based on agriculture, out of 160, only nine have made decent progress on their deforestation targets. And you can go back and see all these goals that people were signing up for about deforestation. Now, we're one of those companies and we're not quite where we want to be. Maybe yeah. We've made a huge amount of progress. We wanted to be 100% deforestation free across our big five commodities. We're not quite there yet. There's a reason why we're not quite there yet though. And it's, it's the human dimension. And that might be something we want to talk about a little bit as well, because I think we get a little bit caught up on failing to think about the people dimension. But put that to one side for a moment. The key thing for me is that people talk about greenwashing. I'm, I'm bothered about target washing. You know, right. this, if you put the target out there, look what we've, yeah. I mean, the number of times companies just let that slide. We can't keep doing that. We absolutely need to get on with some delivery and you know, see some actual return on all the effort and some progress. And when it comes to climate change, that means, and come back to this point about targets, I'm very frustrated with the idea that somehow or other people can get away with, we're going for net zero, but we're only doing it on scopes one or two. Right. When actually for many companies, most of the emissions are in scope three. So that's the sort of thing. So you know, in, in response to your question, which is kind of a general one around how do we avoid getting this wrong? Well, you're right. There is a degree of greenwashing, but that, the, the way around that is that Companies should be held to account by their investors for their scope three investment and their stakeholders for their scope three emissions and for delivery on their targets, not just giving people pats on the back for grandstanding on showy commitments that, that don't actually add up to any delivery. Yeah. And this issue of duplicity is, is multifaceted. I mean, there's a lot of dialogue right now here in the United States about the Inflation Reduction Act and how certain companies on one hand are supporting the bill, but on the other hand, they have lobbyists resisting the bill because the tax hikes for them, they argue, is going to make them uncompetitive. So how do you solve for these sort of tensions between the private sector and, and policymaking and so on and lobbying? Well, transparency, you know, absolutely transparency is, is key here. I, I mean, I'm not going to answer for other companies. I think it's, uh, so it's risky to kind of talk about business in general in that regard. What I feel, personally speaking, I think the company would go along with this, is that you know, we need high bar regulation. We're absolutely totally up for that. We have a particular way of valuing carbon inside the business, but ultimately, yeah, of course there should be a price put on carbon. You know, we need level playing fields. We need policymakers, regulators to step up with regulation that raises the bar for everybody. But in the meantime, 
some of us just got to get on with it. And so we do. And we encourage anybody and everybody. If you haven't, I mean, to put it this way, if there's any business out there that doesn't have a Paris aligned net zero roadmap and they are delivering on it, then there's something wrong. We need every decent sized business to, to do this. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. The whole point of this whole lead with we thesis is really the future of collaborative leadership. We got in this mess together and we've got to get out of it together. And half of us doing it half the time is just not going to get it done. And moving to the execution piece and getting it done, in a sense, and the distinctions you drew about Nestle are really meaningful, but also as a leader, there's higher scrutiny. You might say that there's greater inertia because you've got all the investments in the past and you've got to self-disrupt and so on, yet at the same time, you've got more resources. What is it like to be an industry leader in inverted commas and feel the pressure from all these different sides, all stakeholders, investors, as well as employees and consumers? What's it like in the hot seat? You know, I, I honestly, the company has, some people see the company, people see the company in different ways. Let's put it that way. So let's organize this thread. People see the company in many different ways. In certain parts of the world, you say Nestle, and people go, oh, yeah, Nestle, and they've got a kind of negative view about the company. In many, many parts of the world, we're a very well-packed partner. It's actually right. coming into the inside of the business. It's actually quite, I was quite pleasantly surprised that um, in many parts of the world, you know, Nestle has a fantastic corporate reputation and terrific. You know, we do all, all we can to earn it. But as our chairman points out, you know, we are the biggest and the tall poppy often catches the wind. So we are the kind of uh, the totem. We're a totemic example of a big business. A lot of people have high expectations of us. But I think also to say that we, we talked earlier on about the company, about the different types of uh, framing of this, that you've got uh, ESG, you've got sustainability, responsibility, and so on. As you probably know, Nestle, in its, in its Nestle way at the time, coined together with uh, Porsche and Kramer, the creative shared value concept. And that has kind of stood the test of time up to a point. And I, I actually think regeneration as a theme is a, a, almost like a logical extension of creating shared value. Now, why did Nestle put itself all in on creating shared value? Well, as, a, as people here will say, it was done through conviction. It was done because there is a conviction in the business, always has been, always will be, that we cannot be around for the long term unless we're creating value for society in the broadest sense. That is a conviction that runs through this business and has done for 150-something years. The length of the business, its success over the long term, I think really does tune people into, we really do want to be around for the next 150 years, and we're not going to be around for another 150 years unless we address these broader environmental and social concerns, and unless we're delivering value for a broader uh, stakeholder base than simply our shareholders. So that this conviction thing is a really important part of the culture of the business, and, and I've been Pleasantly surprised at just how strongly that runs through once you're on the inside. I mean, I saw it from the outside. I heard about it from the outside. But on the inside, yeah, it really is. It's part of the culture of business. It's really important what you're saying because as the context becomes more acute for business with all these challenges we face, your relevance, whether you're going to be on the right side of history, will increasingly turn on your participation in these things. And, you know, through the lens of your sort of work, outside of Nestle and inside of Nestle, give us a sense, because we're all in our own little wormholes in the world and so on, about the complexity of solving for these issues. Like, where do you start? Do you look at the food systems themselves and try and troubleshoot what needs to be fixed? Do you start with your HQ and go out to your brands? Do you start in the markets and go up from the brands back to HQ? Like, if you were tasked 
to really feed a growing number of people around the world more responsibly on a challenged planet, how on earth do you start whiteboarding that strategically? Well, <laughs> if you try and do it that way, you're kind of a little bit lost because you're trying to boil the ocean. So you have to kind of pull back from that a little bit. And one of the other things, I think this is an interesting reason why we've taken some pretty big strategic decisions lately. So I think you may know that Nestle used to have a zone structure with three zones. We now have five zones. And the reason why five zones is because it pushes decision-making further out into the business. That structure gives us, I think, far more agility when it comes to activation. But coming back into the, uh, to the center for, for a moment, obviously it starts with leadership. And uh, I'm just delighted to have the CEO that we had. Very thoughtful, very considered. He'd be the first to say he wasn't the first to the party when it comes to climate change and sustainability. But having thought about it, he has come to the conclusion that it is the defining issue of our time. And I think that the way it's being positioned, and Mark, Mark Schneider is, is really leading the way with this, is that there has to be a just transition. Right. So yeah. that is an absolute yeah. given now in the business. There is no transition to net zero unless there is a ju just transition. And we need to look at how we express that in reality. So, well, the way we do that is also through regenerative agriculture, there will be no transition to regenerative agriculture without it is a just transition. The same could be said for the forest's agenda that we, we work on. There has to be justice and social justice. So it's putting people in the center of this. And that, by thinking of it in those terms, yeah, it, it, I think it's quite inspiring for people in the business and we can activate it in the field. So what does all that mean? Well, if you think about it in terms of activating regenerative agriculture, how do we, how could we possibly do that? Well, we're fortunate in that we have direct sourcing relationships with 700,000 there or thereabouts farmers around the world. So, and these are largely yes, small holding farmers. They're not massive. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so although we're obviously buying from the like, you know, the big, the big trading companies, yes, of course, they're important for us in terms of buying ingredients. We also, though, have this direct relationship. We have 2,000 agronomists. Now, if you're thinking about the kind of transition we want to make in regenerative agriculture, there is a transition cost, and we need to help farmers. We can't just impose it. So we work with the farmers. To, we work with those farmers we work with directly, and we're thinking in terms of technical assistance through the agronomists. We're talking about transition farms, pilot farms, so that farmers can come and see what's going on themselves. We're talking about finance support, and we're talking about paying premiums, so financial rewards uh, for farmers to, to sell us produce that's been produced using regenerative practices. Now, all of that is needed for the business. That's great for addressing climate change, reducing the impacts, but it's actually essential for us because going back to this idea of advancing regenerative food systems, we believe that food systems should be giving back more than they take. And agriculture is obviously the way in which you do that. That's why regenerative practices matter. So it's this kind of network thing. When you've got 187 countries there and thereabouts, operations in all of them on the ground. You can't sit here in Veve and just direct it from here. What you can do is set the tone, set the theme, set the direction, and then you allow people to go and get on with it. And that's how we do it. Right. And let me push in on that a bit because it's so complicated. It's not easy. For example, you know, there's probably legacy mindsets and practices amongst those farmers, especially in certain regions around the world where this is the way things have always been done. And there must be quite a heavy lift to get them to transition. At the same time, you've got subsidies in different markets and so on that are almost 
counterproductive because they're keeping the old ways of doing things in place. So how do you resolve these tensions? Well, I'll give you a very specific example, actually. It's sort of a, a, a bit of a sort of one of those topics where you're touching on regen ag, but not quite, but you're really focusing on the social concerns. So let's talk about poverty and child labor in West Africa for a moment. So we know, everybody knows, anybody who's ever had any connection with the cocoa industry knows that there are endemic problems with child labor, and it is a devilishly difficult problem to fix. We've gone about this in multiple ways, including an extremely intensive child labor monitoring and remediation system. It's almost like a starfish principle. You know, you're, not, you're making a difference on individual lives, and it's super, super intensive. And it's not necessarily going to solve the problem because it doesn't necessarily solve the root causes. The root causes are multiple. Yeah. But one of the causes is the economics of cocoa farm. So we came up with the recently launched, we launched this this year, we call it the Cocoa Income Accelerator. And it's designed to address the root causes of child labor by addressing cocoa livelihoods. So the way in which we're doing this is we're actually rewarding farmers, we're paying farmers cash premiums for adopting certain practices. But the first practice they have to adopt, put your kids in school. Don't put them on the farm first, put them in school. You get a financial reward for doing so. You get a financial reward for adopting certain agricultural practices. You get a financial reward for actually setting up something that will generate you more income. So we're actually rewarding people for generating income, for doing things that want to generate an income in future, and so on. So in a sense, we're taking what's actually a fairly well-established policy in Europe, you know, the kind of environmental management systems that we have in many, many uh, across the EU and certainly in the UK, and we're applying it in a new context in West Africa. Now, one of, the, one of the practices when it comes to farming practice that we're financially rewarding is pruning, because culturally, pruning is actually a bit of a challenge. Right. Now, very heavy pruning of cocoa trees makes a huge difference, positive. But for many farmers, culturally, it's complete anathema because it's you know, very often trees that have been in the family's farm for a long time. So that's the kind of practice that you know, by making a financial reward, working with farmers, working with and providing labor gangs and so on, you can actually shift behavior because you're rewarding the thing that you want to see. And ultimately, those cocoa farmers should get a better return for their cocoa by increasing the productivity, increasing yield, and encouraging kids to be in school. No, it's incredibly powerful, and it implies something, a shift that's inherent in every solution almost we need today, which is there's a long-termism here rather than a short-term view. And I want to ask you, especially for publicly traded companies, and especially when there's inflation and a recession and there's downward pressure on stock prices and so on, often you hear it's much harder to make these investments outright, let alone for the long-term when you're beholden to your shareholders. So how do you resolve all of that? I think one of the uh, most interesting changes over the course of the last decade or so for me, having come personally, very much from the sustainability world. Most of the people I used to work with years ago took a very dim view of the financial world, that investors don't understand it, do they? Investors don't get it, do they? Investors don't think long term, do they? I think that is dawning about, I don't know how long ago, maybe five or so years ago. I had this dawning when I was in some conference room or other with a bunch of uh, people from various investment houses and suddenly realized that they knew a heck of a lot more about my world than I knew about their world. And that was a moment. It was almost like a defining moment in my life. It's holy cow. We've been sitting there in a kind of holier than thou. We're the sustainability people. We know where all this is going. And those investors, they don't take it seriously, do they? 
you know, and we were wrong. Uh, well, that we were right maybe 10, 20 years ago, but we, you know, suddenly realized, holy cow, this has changed. Everything has changed. And, and I think, you know, the, the level of questions coming into the role that I'm now in, the level of questions I get from investors about our sustainability efforts, our regeneration efforts, are on a different level from most that I get from NGOs and activist groups. They're on a different level of different level of understanding. There's a different level of how these things are impacting the business. Negative if you don't do them, positive if you do. I think it's really interesting. And it really has made a huge difference, I think, for speaking for this company. I will tell you that our chief finance officer at our internal marketing conference just a few weeks ago, he was the one that was giving the presentation that was talking about sustainability right. and why our sustainability investments make us a better company, why they make us a company that investors want to invest in. I think that's absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's so powerful. I know in the 12 years of WeFirst, we've seen who we talk to go from the head of CSR and philanthropy to the CMO, to the CEO, to the CFO, as the integration of sustainability and regeneration into the business becomes more clear and apparent and self-evident to everybody. I mean, the degree of difficulty of all of this is just through the roof. And another specific sort of variable I want to look to is you know, you've got all the fallout of the climate emergency as such as it is today. For example, you've got markets like India and Pakistan and heat waves and so on, which are so important markets outright, but also in supply chains. So what is the onus on a company like Nestle to sort of support those markets in ways that aren't directly related to their business? Because the viability of those communities then has an impact on the business. Yeah, I think one of the ways in which we can do this is, is stand with the farmers that have supplied us for many years. I think it's, uh, I'll give you an example. I mean, in the case of India, it's really interesting because, of course, India, there is the, they were one of the first countries to mandate what they call it CSR. I would call it what's philanthropy, the mandate philanthropy. And I think that's a reflection of the kind of social condition in India, that there is a responsibility that people have to take care of others around them. And we certainly feel that too when it comes to the dairy farmers that we work with in India. Most of the farms that we work with in India are relatively small. And so we have to think very, very carefully about the direct relationship that we have with them and helping them to ensure that their milk is kept fresh and, and that we can keep, you know, that, that we're not rejecting them. So rather than just rejecting, we work with them to make sure that they've got the equipment that they need. And there's a long-termism. And I'll, I'll take an example in the UK. We've been on a program of work with farmers in the UK, dairy farmers, to introduce regenerative agriculture. And we're finding it's possible to do. The reason why it's possible to do is because when the milk price was fluctuating wildly some years ago, we stuck with the contracts. We didn't change the contract. We didn't right. drive the contract down. Even if we were experiencing cost pressure ourselves, we'd enter into a contract with the cooperative first milk. We said we'd stay with it. We did stay with it. And now it's now we're trying to do something different with farmers. Yeah, it actually is. It's that they're willing to engage with us because we're a trusted partner. And I think this idea of being the trusted partner, we, you know, do we get it right all the time? Of course we don't. You know, it's not possible to get it right all the time. But the theme that runs through is to, to build trust, build for the long term. Those relationships matter. You have to nurture them. It's one thing to sort of upgrade, evolve, iterate old practices. It's another to leverage innovation. And I mean, there's so many amazing things happening, like companies pulling carbon out of the air and creating cultures that make protein equivalents and so on and so on. In your sort of lens on how, A, we're going to feed a growing number of people and B, what type of food we're going to give them and the climate consequences of that, 
how important is innovation in the mix and is there a strategy whereby you try and you know work with and bring into the fold companies that are doing very very disruptive sort of technologies bring them to market in the food category yeah so i think it's funny uh, conversations that we've had around here you, know, you can't separate innovation and regeneration mm. anything and everything we're doing on innovation should have some sort of element that's supporting the regeneration agenda and you can't do regeneration unless you're thinking innovatively you know so for us we're sitting here we have a the Nestle research center just down the road i am stunned about what they do there honestly it's absolutely brilliant so give you a couple of examples we set up some years ago the Nestle packaging institute because we couldn't find the science that we needed to make the transitions that we want to make when it comes to packaging Right. Uh, and you think about it, you know, sort of we're all saying, well, we've got to stop using plastic. Well, of course, we all want to reduce virgin plastic use. And we also are serving customers, consumers in many parts of the world with high degree of heat, high degree of humidity, and so on. So if you want to use, if you want to transition to paper, you want to trans- transition to bulk, you need the science to make that work. So, right. you know, we couldn't get it, so we built it. Similarly, we've got the Nestle Institute of Agricultural Sciences that they've just launched down there. So that's on the kind of science side. And then it, on the R&D side and the innovation side, we're dependent on youth. I mean, hugely dependent on youth. So we've built this thing called the Nestle R&D Accelerator to help young people bring their, bring their ideas to fruition and then accelerate them out, spin them off. And there's already a whole stream of examples that are out there already that we've worked with. There's an acquisition strategy as well that's around this, all to say that we know that innovation is important, but it's also the pace at which you bring those innovations to market. Right. And we have to increase the pace. That's another focus for us. We, we've touched on your net zero commitment. We've touched on generation regeneration, your work with farmers and piloting new programs and innovation. One of the sort of frameworks with which we look at crises of this scale is the sustainable development goals. And it was interesting, the, the last two years have been mad, Rob. I mean, you've had I felt that, that the conversation about the SDGs was increasing in 2019. It was finally getting its feet underneath it after a lot of faltering over the years. You know, these 17 goals that the United Nations and other heads of state set back in 2015. And then, you know, COVID took over and all these other issues, you know. How, how do you work towards those? Are they an organizing principle for you in terms of your commitment? And how do you collaborate with other companies within the food industry to achieve them more quickly? I think it's fair to say that they're a thread that runs through. So we're always referring back to them when it comes to our reporting. We're always referring back to them when we're thinking about, well, what is the direction of travel for our commitments? We did anyway. We kind of had a bit of a, a commitment setting phase uh, shortly after I arrived. And I think we've got that fairly well set now. One or two things that we still need to build out. So it sits there as a, as a theme, as a thread that runs through. I couldn't tell you that it's an organizing theme. You know, we right. can't organize the business taking that as a template. It's not an organizing model for us. What it is though, is a really, really incredibly useful template for what are the issues that matter most and what have we got to get after? I mean, obviously goals one, two, and three stand out for us, but I want to just make a bit of a call out also for goal 16. You know, I think the idea of peace and justice and the idea of peaceful and just societies is an incredibly important one for us. And it's one of the reasons why we do so much work. It's about the many of the places that we work in, there's some quite fragile states that we work in. And we see that 
I think 16 and 17 for me are the two that really stand out. Not as an organizing principle, but as a, as a real driver of thinking. Um, the others perhaps can be more a, a more specific in terms of, well, here's a thing you've got to hit and here's a number you've got to get to. 16 and this idea of democracy, peace, and justice and human rights, massively important. If you don't right. get those things right, you won't get the other things. If you don't get the other things, you won't get that right. But it is, I think, an entry point. At, at 17 for collaboration, you know, we can't fix these problems alone. We have to learn to work together better. And we have to learn to work together across the divide of you know, the, the biggest states of business on the one hand, finance, the NGO world, the regulatory and the government world. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure that we're, we collectively as a, as, as a civilization are, are, are particularly good at getting across those things, but I think we've got to get better at it. Yeah, I'm a little hopeful because, I mean, in, in the context of crises, we come together in ways that are unimaginable in, in normal times. And we've seen that with COVID and so on. Here's my concern about, you know, this reimagination of the food systems and, and our ability to feed people is that on one hand, it's just unconscionable that so many people around the world are going to face these challenges of access to, to clean water and food, especially in the global south. But also, if you reflect on it a little bit longer, people are never more desperate they never take more stride in action when they are literally fighting for survival. And this can lead to, obviously, refugees, it can lead to nationalism, it can lead to protectionism and so on. So when you say this context of peace, you know, peaceful communities and societies and so on, I really do worry through the lens of food as to what can go wrong. So I know you're doing work around micronutrients and so on. Like, these are very powerful and interwoven issues. So do you look at it through that lens? Because Peace and stability is really enabled by food in the first place. Well, it is, and I'm deeply aware of that, deeply, deeply aware of that. And it goes back to the point I made earlier on that as a company, we have a huge amount of influence. But you know, let's be clear, Nestle can't feed the world. It's not, a, it's not in our scope to do that. But much as one might like it, it's just impossible for us to think in those terms. What we can do, though, is you, you absolutely point out micronutrient fortification. We are thinking very deeply about the affordable nutrition programs that we have in place. And there's a whole range of affordable nutrition things. That we've got. I mean, to give you any, again, sorry, it's random examples, but you know, if you look at some of the things that we're doing in West Africa, golden morn is porridge that we produce. It's an upcycled. So there's a waste in the agricultural supply stream that could be put to good purpose. It's good protein and carbohydrates. So what can we do to do something with that and turn it into a, a, a porridge that's affordable? So it's a wonderful example of eliminating waste in the supply chain, finding a way to repurpose it that actually delivers something that's highly nutritious with micronutrient fortification. That's the kind of thing we can do. Now, if we can do it at some scale, but it isn't it's going to fix every food problem ever. No, of course it's not going to do that. But it is a direction we can go that makes a difference to, to, to people. So the affordable nutrition programs that we have are really very, very strong, and they will need to get stronger. There's no question about that. I think the whole area of affordability is one that we are just going to have to start looking at in other markets as well. We can't avoid that in my eyes. How we do that is going to be very much down to local market context because what's appropriate in, uh, in East Asia isn't appropriate in southern Spain. So, right. so that's where I think our country operations, our local operations have got a big role to play. But I, I think what you're describing is absolutely right. I mean, you know, if you think about it in terms of uh, food banks, I mean, food banks, when, you know, I don't know, 15 years ago, when we started seeing them, were 
there are extremists of people that are really on the, you know, in, in difficulties. But you know, it's becoming almost like part of everyday life now that people are depending on food banks. Yeah. So you know that that is a worry, and I, I know a lot of people are very concerned about it. And I spent some time with, with people at an event earlier this year on this very topic. It's something where we we have a role to play. We can't fix it, but we can certainly play a part, and we will. Right. Yeah. And even here in the United States, food banks are becoming a staple of communities and society. A point you made earlier on, which I think is really important about extremists, much as the challenges that we face right now are looming large, it's compelling us to think in ways that we couldn't have thought of before. I am deeply, we're all deeply worried about, uh, about wheat, we're deeply worried about fertilizers, we're deeply worried about energy, we're deeply worried about all of these things. But it's forcing us to think, and I say us, oh, not just necessarily, I'm talking about you know, the, all the food actors, to think in, in, in ways that perhaps we wouldn't have been able to previously, that might help accelerate some of the progress that we need to make. I mean, the onus on companies of all sizes, especially leaders, to think and act in new ways, not only applies to long-term systemic solutions, but also real-time crises. And I mean, Ukraine could not be more dramatic. What has Ukraine taught you as a company in terms of really thinking and acting like a first responder in a sense? Because, you know, the lack of access to those core crops like wheat and so on that have only recently started, you know, getting their way out of the ports and so on. How has it changed the way you think? And also, this is not the end of something, it's the beginning of something. And as much as there's going to be climate refugees all around the world and people are going to be forced to live in new ways in new areas. So how do you think about the role of a company like yours solving for an issue of a real-time crisis like Ukraine? There's a lot of learning that's come out of Ukraine, the invasion. I mean, let's call it what it is, Russia invaded Ukraine. Sure. In a way, the COVID crisis was the one that was kind of more of a learning piece for us. And it, it kind of comes around in, in, in sort of three ways that, that we think about it. And I, I, I think it's how we saw it in post-COVID. In a way, we probably apply it in, in other situations such as Ukraine. First and foremost, protect our people. I mean, it's always the thing we do. You know, we've got, I said earlier on, we've got 270 odd thousand people around the world. And in most parts of the world, there's, there's some people that are directly associated with our company. And the first thing we do is take care of those people. Second thing we do is look at how we can keep the stocks up, keep pantries stocked. If we're if people are depending on us, then we that we need to be reliable. So, you know, in the case of the pandemic, certainly, I mean, the, the amount of effort that went into keeping factories running, keeping supplies up, making sure that we didn't let stocks run too low and avoid the kind of inevitable consequences of that, which is panic buying and so on. That's the second thing. Third thing, where can we lend a hand? How can we make something happen that isn't happening? Who needs our support? What can we provide? Is it a case of donation of food? Is it a case of finance? Is it a case of something else? What resources do we have that can enable us to make a difference to support? Uh, we did that particularly through the IFRC in the pandemic. One of the other things which I think is worth noting is that given the countries that we work in, we work in many fragile countries around the world. We don't have a point of view about regimes. We stand for democracy, we stand for peace, we stand for stability. But you can't go into countries and just start pontificating about how that country should run itself. No, what you can do is serve people. And it keeps coming back to this again and again and again. Direct relationships, serving people that work for us, people that depend on us for their everyday foodstuffs, 
that's how we have to see it. How do we help people? And, you know, I want to push on that a little bit because we've looked upstream to your farmers and suppliers. We've looked downstream to consumers in different markets and all their regional needs. But your people, your 270,000 people, every company around the world of any size has been challenged to keep their people, to get the most out of them and at this critical time, to manage their work-life balance more effectively, to look at the whole human being. Like with that many people and that many markets to manage, how do you organize that? What are your strategies? Well, again, as you know, we have it's the tone and the direction is set from the center, but this is not, you know, I, I'm not even sure if we call the building I'm sitting in headquarters. Right. Because that would imply some kind of command control system that we simply don't have. We set the tone, we set the certain themes that we set from here, but there's so much of what happens is they're decided at zone level and then at regional level and at market level. So yeah. But one thing which I think we had a conversation earlier this morning, probably enough about values and company value sets. I've been over the course of my career, Christ, I've worked with so many company value sets. And you know, I always think they're really frankly rubbish. We don't have a value set. We have one word, it's respect. That's our value set, respect. Respect for ourselves. You have to respect yourself for what you do, respect the colleagues around you, respect for the customers, respect for the world, and crucially, respect for the future generations. We, we genuinely talk about respect for the future and the future generations. And I think that summing it all up in that one word is incredibly powerful because that's that's the kind of that you know, whatever the regional or geographical or national culture that you might experience in the different national operations around the world. That one word is totally transversal everywhere you go, and people know what you mean. Now, that's how it is for the company. But one other facet, going back to your first question, which was around optimism, you know, we need to be an employer that attracts the very best talents coming to the business. And it is incredibly, incredibly powerful. I know this, I know it's not new, but it, it bears repetition. The youth of today want to work, if they're going to go into a nine to five in the first place, which many people don't want to do, but if you're coming into a job, if you want to work in a business, you want to know that that company is taking its responsibilities seriously, especially when it comes to climate change. Right. Not exclusively circular, social concerns as well. People don't want to work for a company that isn't taking care of these issues. So that's another driver for it to be built through the business. And yeah. I think that word respect, though, respect for respect is the uh, is the core of it. And, and what I love about what you're saying is that a term like respect can seem sort of empty or aspirational, but from an executional point of view, what it translates to is you are not a command and control HQ, but rather the brand or the the overarching brand of Nestle, the parent company, the enterprise, is almost like a platform on which the markets stand, on which the employees stand, on which the brands stand, and you build up from there. And I think that's how it translates to something meaningful. And I want to just push in on a couple of things. It's almost as if the landscape, the topography, the map on which Nestle and every other company has changed under its feet, because the impact of climate means arable land is shifting. Temperatures are shifting. You have to shift what crops you make and where you make them and so on. So it's not just that you've got to maintain your supply chains and innovate and scale and, and adapt in real time, but it's almost the, the very sort of soil under your feet that you've got to work with. The very nature of it is shifting. So how does a company of your complexity and scale maintain what it's always done in the context of where it came from while also adjusting for what's changing under your feet? Yeah, again, I mean, there are some technical things that we could do. You, know, you mentioned 
climate change affecting soils, but we need living soils. That's the, that's the first, that's the cornerstone of Regen Ag is living soils. And there's so much work that we do with farmers and with our Institute of Agricultural Sciences around how to bring soils to life. And uh, there's some great examples of projects we've already done in Northern France on that, in that regard. And, and I say Northern France, at the same time, I could be talking about drought-resistant coffee plants that we're now distributing. We, did, we distribute so many thousands of coffee plants to coffee farmers to help them with the regeneration of their coffee farms. It's an incredibly, ta- I, I, I saw this in fair trade, you know, that watching farmers with declining yields because the trees were exhausted on exhausted soils, but they didn't have, it takes three years for a coffee plant to become active again, to become uh, viable and, and deliver a, a decent harvest. Well, you're not going to grub up the old plants and lose your income in favor of the new ones if you've got a three-year time horizon. So you keep the old ones going, but the old ones are declining. So how do you get, it's like bridging that kind of gap. Now we can do that because we've got those direct relationships. We can work directly with them on the, on the ground. But I know it sounds repetitious, but it comes back again and again to this thing that for all the sides of the business, it's the local context and the local operations. And I, you know, I said right at the start, people often think of us as a big, homogenous, global business. When anything but that, it's a vibrant, multiple-headed uh, thing that's got so many local. I mean, I, I don't know. Actually, I almost think we should do a kind of a model. You could look at high feed. You know, the the high feed, the yeah. fungi. It's almost like that, actually. The I, multiple I, little touch points that are going on that have lots of interactions that nobody quite knows what's happening over there, near there, everywhere. But there's just a thread that kind of runs through it. I think that, you know, a lot of people are talking about mycelium these days and these networks under the soil because that foundational connectivity, it's almost like we've lost that as human beings and we're yearning for that through our screen, after our screen living and so on. I mean, to your point, Rob, we started by talking about why we're optimistic. We're mobilizing people on a scale never before. But from the lens of, you know, your experience at fair trade and sustainability and now at Nestle, you know, what is one thing that has to happen for there to be a, a, a very meaningful unlock to take us to the next level? What's one obstacle where you're like, if only we could do this, we could take these growing best efforts even further that much more quickly? It's a really interesting question. One thing. You know, I'd love to give you a direct answer to that question. I, the one thing that I think could make a substantial difference, but I don't have a huge amount of hope that this would happen, is that every person everywhere that has the luxury of a vote would vote for a candidate that has climate change top of their agenda. But that isn't going to happen. So, you know, if you want something with optimism, you better cut the above. Because it isn't going to happen. No, I, I hear you, but the point is well taken. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think the, the, the you know, democratic politics isn't putting it at the top of its agenda, and it needs to. It's starting to happen. I think the IRA is a huge step forward. Simon, at the risk of undermining the question, I think the challenges we face are so complex. I'm not actually sure there is a, a sort of magic switch. If only we could dot dot dot. I just don't, I just don't, I personally can't see it. I can't see what the one thing, there's a whole string of things we can do. We need a price on carbon, right? We need a global price on carbon, but you know, global price on carbon does not mean a single price on carbon, right? Because the, you know, we have very, we have multiple prices on carbon uh, in this business because 
it's not sensible to have just one. You need more than. So we need a carbon pricing methodology. And then you end up in complexity and you get into, into, into stasis. I think what we, one answer to the question that, that could help is that if the G20 and the G70 could come together, actually, I think there is a way forward here. Yeah, I'd sort of be this one. I don't have a huge amount of hope for COP27. Yeah. No, I'm not hugely optimistic for COP27. But I do think the COP28 might be the one that could really drive things through. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not giving you a great answer to this question. No, I, there is one. What I'm taking away from your answer, though, is participatory democracy. We need to show up. In the same way that we need participatory capitalism, we need to vote with our dollars every day. And, you know, I want to thank you, Rob. I want to thank you for not only showing us the complexity of the problems, but also the sophistication of the solutions that are required. And it's great, very heartening for all of us and someone in my position to hear that those who have so much more resources and reach and, and reasons to participate are doing so so meaningfully. So thank you for sharing, you know, and peeling back the curtain and giving us a sense of what's going on in SLA and look forward to continuing the conversation. Yeah. Well, all I can say is, Simon, thanks for the good work that you do. And uh, the We First model puts people at the center of everything. And you said at the beginning of this that uh, I've had a career that embraced lots of different facets of sustainability. All I can say is that working on the inside of a business, I've seen firstly, how damn difficult it is. Secondly, how damn committed people are to driving change. And it's privileged to have the opportunity to do this work. So, yeah. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. Our show is produced by Goal 17 Media, and you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode. Make sure you follow Lead with We on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you really love the show, share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you're looking to go even deeper into the world of purposeful business, Check out my new book and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Lead with We, which is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you again soon, and until then, let's all lead with we.